What's written on the inside of this piece of paper? Tell me. You can't tell me, can you? If I said I'll give you a million dollars if you can figure out what's written on the inside of this piece of paper, and if I told you you could have as many guesses as you wanted, you would attempt to guess what's written here, wouldn't you? And you could make an educated guess. You could say, well, maybe it has something to do with West Virginia. He's from West Virginia. That's me. You could say, well, maybe it has something to do with dessert. He loves dessert. Oh, maybe it has something to do with antique cars. He loves antique cars. Maybe it has something to do with history. He loves history. Oh, no, no, no. I know. He's a preacher. Surely it's a Bible verse written on the inside of this piece of paper. And you might come up with an answer making an educated guess. But only if you assume that I wrote what's on the inside of this paper. What if I didn't write it? What if you don't know who did write it? Maybe it was written by a man. Maybe it was written by a woman. Maybe it contains the scribbling of a three-year-old. Or maybe it contains the writing of a college professor. It could be written by an American. It could be written by a Ukrainian. It could be written in English. It could be written in Sanskrit. If all this information is hidden from you, how much hope would you have of ever guessing what's written on the inside of this paper or ever collecting the money? What if God... We're like what's written on this piece of paper, a complete mystery. And what if we were required to guess correctly who he is with no information to go on before he would accept us? We could look around us and make an educated guess, but those guesses could not lead us to the right conclusion. Those kind of guesses lead us to conclusions that involve primordial slime and missing links. So how thankful we should be, you and I, this morning, that God has not hidden himself. That God does not make us guess. To borrow the title of Francis Schaeffer's classic 1972 book, He is there and he is not silent. Is that good news? That's our great hope. That's our only hope, that God is there, and He has told us He's there. He's not left us alone. He has not left us in the dark. He has not left us to figure Him out on our own. God speaks to us because He wants us to get it right. God speaks to us because He wants us to know Him. Therefore, because He is a God who speaks, you and I must listen and obey. If you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth chapter. When you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the Word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, for speaking to us through your word, for revealing yourself so that we might know you and love you. Thank you for speaking to us through your word so that we might know how it is you would have us live our lives. We pray now as together we, your people, your family, gather around your word that your spirit would give us understanding and that your spirit would join with the truth of your word and bring great transformation in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning, as promised, we have to look at the fourth and final S of this passage. If you were here last week, and many of you were not, shame on you. We considered three other S's that characterize Jesus as king of the kingdom. The first S is stirs. King Jesus stirs things up. That's what it means to have Jesus as our king. He'll stir things up. That's what he always did. This was the great accusation leveled against him by his enemies. He stirs things up. It's the reason people wanted him dead. Because Jesus would not leave their lives alone. He would not allow them. He does not allow us to be comfortable in our lives. He does not allow us to live lives of convenience. And both of those conditions are the very thing that you and I seek for ourselves. But Jesus stirs things up. Secondly, Jesus is a king who sees. And his perception, his vision is penetrating. He sees deeply into each and every one of us, into the inmost places of our minds and hearts. And you and I can rejoice that what he sees, he does not turn away from in disgust. He doesn't ignore it. Jesus acts and responds to the great needs that he perceives. And so as he saw this crowd, he perceived that the greatest need they had is for truth. And so he sat down on the mountain and he began to teach them. He requires us to do the same thing. He inconveniences our lives and asks you and me to really see those around us. To do what's necessary. To know people. On such a level that we see them, that we know their needs, and when we perceive what those needs are, when we perceive whatever it is we see to be true about them, we don't turn away in disgust. Neither do we ignore that need. We must respond and we must act. The third S that we saw is that Jesus is a king who sits. Even now, Jesus is in session at the right hand of God the Father. In heavenly places, above all rule, above all authority, above all power, above all dominion, above every name, now and forevermore. Everything is under his feet. He is head over all things. And Jesus is sitting on this mountain for us to see, to encourage you and me to know his kingly authority and his kingly power. Ours is not a hopeless life of chaos. Jesus is a good king, a powerful king, and he's in charge. He's a sovereign king, and he knows the plans that he has for us, plans to give us a hope and a future. And from his position of power and authority, he is praying for us, for you and for me, so that you and I can end our prayers with, in Jesus' 
name we pray because in doing so we are acknowledging and we are resourcing the power behind that name and we are enabled to submit our lives to him without fear even in our culture. Those are the three S's. This morning we come to the fourth S. Jesus is a king who speaks. Right? You already guessed that. Look at verse 2. It says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Why did Matthew write it this way? Why did Matthew not simply write, And Jesus sat down and said, He could have written that. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates the verse this way. If you're using the NIV, it simply says, he said. But that's not what Matthew wrote. Matthew wrote that Jesus opened his mouth. See, apparently the translators of the the NIV just considered this a euphemistic expression used in that culture for speaking. But it's more than that. A theological point is being made here in in drawing attention to Jesus, opening his mouth to speak. As we've seen over and over, Matthew writes his gospel to show to us, to his readers, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Consider what we saw last week. Moses ascended the mountain. Jesus, the greater Moses, ascended the mountain. Moses sat down to receive the word of God. Jesus, the greater Moses, sits to deliver the word of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God shadowed in the Old Testament. He, Jesus, is the true and final redeemer and deliverer of which Moses was just a type. And so now Matthew places the attention on the mouth of Jesus as the one who speaks the word of God. And this, too, is a fulfillment of Scripture and makes us ready to listen to all that Jesus says. I want to read to you from Psalm 78, beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Psalmist says, I will teach. I will open my mouth. I will utter dark sayings. Dark sayings not in the sense that they are evil, as we might think of dark, but but dark in the sense that they are deep and mysterious and inscrutable. They're things that concern the transcendent God, a God of all greatness and all glory and all goodness and all grace, who enters into a relationship with people who are none of these things. Newsflash. You're not transcendent. Neither am I. We are not full of all goodness and glory and greatness and grace. But God loves and cares for us anyway. Is that good news? These are dark things. They're hard to understand. These are 
sayings from old because they reach back to a time before the foundation of the world. They're dark sayings as well. Because what is also inscrutable and not easy to understand is how people, like you and like me, could be so ungrateful for these sayings, these communications from the Lord. What is inscrutable and not easy to understand is that people like you and like me would abuse these sayings, rebel against these sayings, disobey these sayings. What is inscrutable and not easy to understand is that people like you and me dismiss these sayings so easily, take them for granted, ignore them altogether. We would not be totally off base if we considered Psalm 78, a messianic psalm, one that points to the coming Messiah, to Jesus, because Jesus himself quotes Psalm 78 about himself in Matthew 13. You can flip over there just a few chapters if you want. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 34. And all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so the connection that Jesus makes here, back to Psalm 78, gives great weight and great solemnity to the words that Jesus is going to speak on the mountain puts these words in line with the dark sayings of ages past. 1 Corinthians 2.7 But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 1 Corinthians 13.12 For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What's written on the paper? (laughs) We are not hopeless to know because Jesus opens his mouth and speaks. Is this not a day of good news? These dark things have come out of the shadows in the person of Christ. He is the fulfillment of them. But because they continue to be the words of the living God. Though we understand them, we don't understand them. We understand the gospel, the words of it, but we don't understand how they could be true. That Jesus, the only Son of the one and only true and living God, would take on flesh and come to earth. How could it be? That His love for us would be so great that He would give His life for us. How could it be? And because he gave his life, we can, by faith, have life now and forever. How could it be? It's true because God has proclaimed it to be true. We know what's written on the paper. Whoever believes in the Son of God shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's written on the paper. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's written on the paper. And these are not merely, and Jesus said words. No, these are, and Jesus 
opened his mouth and said words. How often do you consider the weight of them? The solemnity of them? Matthew doesn't want us to dismiss these words lightly and not to feel their weight. And so he draws attention to the mouth of Jesus. I think Matthew writes these words so that a hush will come over the crowd so that they and we will sit in silent edge of our seat anticipation and expectancy for what Jesus is going to say so that All background noise and white noise will be silent so that we can hear the voice of our shepherd who tells us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Matthew wants to make certain that we don't take for granted that God himself has spoken to us. That he came to earth to speak with us in person, to be the living word, unmistakable, Communication from God. Little wonder that Matthew writes, and Jesus opened his mouth saying, 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Colossians 1.27 To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How can we understand? God has made it known to us. Through the Jesus who opened his mouth to speak. How glad are you about that? Are you glad? Are you glad? Are you glad? Are you glad? I'm glad. The mystery of God is that Christ is in you and he's your hope. He's your glory. How glad are you about that? How glad are you about that? Jesus opened his mouth saying, What's required of you and me when God is speaking? What kind of attention are you giving to these words? What are you doing to enter into and and to begin to understand these dark sayings, these profound truths, these mysteries, ancient yet still life-giving? How should you treat them? What should you do with them? Our king speaks. He's not silent. So listen and find life and hope in his weighty words. So Jesus, our king, stirs and he sees and he sits And he speaks. Now raise your hand if you really think we're through right now. (laughs) Oh, you know better. Yes, because you know what? There's a fifth S. I didn't tell you about that last week. So there's a fifth S that I want us to look at. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Keep listening for it. But if I asked the question, what does Jesus speak? The easy answer to that is, well, he speaks the Sermon on the Mount. The first of the five discourses that Matthew records, Jesus speaking, and undoubtedly the most famous portion in all of Scripture. 
the late Archibald Hunter, professor of New Testament at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and professor of New Testament and Greek and exegesis at Oxford University, wrote this. After 1900 years, now you know how old he is, the Sermon on the Mount still haunts men. They may admire it, as Mahatma Gandhi did, or like Nietzsche, they may curse it. They cannot ignore it. Its words are winged words, quick and powerful to rebuke, to challenge, to inspire. And though some turn from it in despair, it continues like some mighty magnetic mountain to attract to itself the greatest spirit of our race, many not Christians. So that if some worldwide vote were taken, there is little doubt that men would account it the most searching and most powerful utterance we possess on what concerns the moral life. And so now you might be thinking that the fifth S stands for sermon. But the survey says, eh. Sorry if I messed up your notes. You're going to have to erase. Sermon is not the fifth S. Keep listening. What is Jesus teaching here? It's the Sermon on the Mount. But what is the Sermon on the Mount? What's the Sermon about? Where does it apply? To whom does it apply? What is the purpose of this teaching? What is Jesus hoping to accomplish with this teaching? These are the questions that have received a wide variety of answers throughout the almost 2,000 years of the Christian church. The number of books, the number of commentaries that have been written on the Sermon on the Mount boggle the mind. It is the most written about portion in all of Scripture throughout church history, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's a spoiler alert. All commentators do not agree or arrive at the same conclusions about the Sermon on the Mount. Can you believe it? And so it seems appropriate time for a Mark Twain quote. This is what Mark Twain says, but not about the Sermon on the Mount. The researches of many commentators have already thrown much darkness on this subject. And it is probable that if they continue, we shall soon know nothing at all about it. <laughs> oh, that's so true. I will say that it is inexpressibly humbling to, to stand here and add my voice, add my voice to, to those who have come before. You know, really, honestly, you know me. <laughs> what, what do I have to add? Who, who am I to interpret? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to fall back on what we just talked about and humbly point to the mystery of what's contained here and the solemnity of the, these words. And we're going to remember this, that as we look into these dark things, these deep sayings, we are going to trust the Spirit of God who indwells His people to give us understanding. Does that seem a reasonable way to proceed to you? Does it? Trusting the Spirit? You should say yes to that because that's always the way to proceed. Good way to proceed? All right. Thank you so much. Were y'all all in trust this week? Is everybody sleeping? Now, where am I? Here's where I am. The extremity of some of the words that we are going to read are going to make us think that nobody can ever come up to Jesus' standards. 
after all, how our self-centered, promote myself and my own needs people that we are too often, how are we supposed to be meek? How are worry about everything people really supposed to worry about nothing, as Jesus says here? How are people who live in a world permeated with sex supposed to not even have lustful looks or thoughts? How are road rage people, as we are, supposed to turn the other cheek? How are people who would rather pray, my kingdom come, my will be done, really supposed to pray in an authentic way? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How much easier it would be for us to dismiss the whole sermon as an impossible way of living. One commentator listed 12 common views of how to apply and understand the sermon, and he called them this, versions and evasions of the Sermon on the Mount. Versions and evasions of the Sermon on the Mount, because that's what we would like to do, isn't it? To just evade what Jesus is saying here, and many do. Many say, oh, the Sermon on the Mount's not relevant for today. It's a new age, no longer fits, so we can evade the teaching. Some people say, well, you know, the Sermon on the Mount occurred before the cross, so it's really part of the old dispensation, and we don't really have to live by that anymore. We can evade the teaching. Others say, oh, Jesus' teaching here is for the millennial kingdom. It's for a kingdom yet to come. Then life will be as Jesus describes it here in these verses, and then we can evade it. The Catholic Church handled the problem in this way of living out the Sermon on the Mount. They came up with a two-level Christianity. The average Christian could not obey the Sermon on the Mount. The priests and the monks could do that. And so the belief developed that salvation by grace is for uh, the, the lay people, while salvation through works is for the zealous priest and monk. Martin Luther believed that the seemingly impossible to attain standards of the sermon were there simply to make us aware of how dreadfully and deeply sinful we are and show us how much we need the grace of the Lord. So like the Old Testament law, the sermon drives us to the grace of the gospel. But this view also leads to an evasion of the Sermon on the Mount because we're hopeless to achieve it. See, I snuck this history lesson in on you all while you weren't listening. But here we are in the middle of it. John Calvin had a different reading. He viewed Jesus as rescuing the law of God from the Pharisees who emphasized its external acts instead of the heart. And so for Calvin, the servant can be fulfilled by Christians, not in the flesh, but by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Anabaptist, who became the Mennonite and Amish, emphasized the literal, radical reading of the sermon. They apply the sermon with no exceptions. Can you believe it? Kierkegaard emphasized a way of reading the the sermon that calls an awakening of existential crisis and honesty about oneself before God. And so it's all uh, internal and none of it is external. Modern theologies, such as the ones around us that want nothing to do with sin and atonement and redemption and new birth and the deity of Christ, they say, oh, well, the Sermon on the Mount is just a vision of a better world that could be, and poor Jesus is just this misunderstood teacher-philosopher. 
as you and I right here and Redeemer consider this sermon, we may question whether we can embrace both the teaching of this sermon and Jesus' call to come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Obeying this sermon doesn't seem easy or light. But since we know that God is not a God of contradiction, we know that we can and we must do both and we must understand one and light of the other. Come unto me, my yoke is easy, and the Sermon on the Mount. Now I'm certain that all of this has not been particularly inspirational, this little history tour. Thinking about some of the things that have been said about and done to the Sermon on the Mount, but it should be inspirational. And it should inspire all of us to think broadly and deeply about who God is. Who are you, God? How do you view us, Lord? What's your purpose in this world? And then we take the answers to these questions and apply them to this sermon to get at its true meaning. And so toward that end of answering these questions, I offer you now the fifth and final S. You ready for it? You ready for it? The fifth and final S is shalom. That's the fifth and final S. Peace. In that word, I believe we can find the meaning of this sermon. And so we read in verse 2, And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are. Blessed are. Shalom. Peace. Happiness, blessedness. That's what we seek for our lives, isn't it? And the good thing is that this is what Jesus seeks for our lives as well. In fact, shalom is what we were created for. And we find shalom only in communion with God through faith in Jesus Christ as we're empowered by the Spirit of God to love God wholly with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength. So here's the question. How entire is your love for God? Because to that degree will the shalom that Jesus wants for you be. Or to put it another way, we'll only find shalom as we seek to give wholehearted allegiance to King Jesus as good citizens of the kingdom of which he has so graciously made us a part. So the question for us is, how entire and complete is your allegiance and obedience obedience to Jesus your King? Because to the degree of that obedience and allegiance, so shall your shalom be. I believe our King Jesus who stirs us and sees us and sits in session at the right hand of God interceding for us. The king who speaks to us, speaks to us here, shalom. Shalom is about restoring the relationship with God and with one another that was lost in the Garden of Eden. When sin entered to the world, and that's what Jesus wants for us. And that's what he teaches toward in this sermon. You might call it his lesson objective. Shalom. And we're going to see that in this sermon. 
as we go through it. Jesus does not intend to crush us. We'll see that he's on our side. He speaks these words to us to bring shalom to us. So we need to be excited about this sermon. Are you excited? We need not evade it. We must embrace it. We need to say, Lord, keep speaking more. Just like this into my life. Because it does not crush me. It does not bring turmoil. It brings me shalom, peace. So, be brave and boldly pray. Speak, O Lord, for I am listening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who speaks from the very beginning of time. Lord, you spoke everything that is into creation. You created out of nothing everything that is. Adam and Eve, you spoke to them, you walked with them, you talked with them in the cool of the evening, in the perfection of that garden. Lord, that's a picture of shalom for us. It's a picture of your heart and who you are and what you want for us. And Lord, we know, of course, that sin destroyed all of that. Lord, the story of your word, the story of your speaking throughout the centuries, throughout the generations, is to show how shalom, how peace can be restored with you and with others and in this world. So Lord, give us hearts and minds and eyes and ears that are eager to understand and to to hear and to see. And to do all that you have for us. Knowing, Lord, that you're a good God. And knowing that as we live in obedience to you. As we give our allegiance to you. As we love you wholly. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Shalom. The thing you seek for us will be ours. So keep speaking, Lord. For we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.